Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. How are you? <laughs> the few, the groggy, the proud, the spring forward crowd. All right, let's go. If you have a Bible, open it to Romans chapter 2 is where we left off last week as we journey through this incredible letter, one of the most important books in the whole Bible. And we left off at verse 16. If you're new with us today, we just are journeying through the book of Romans, the letter of Romans, which Paul wrote to the Christian church in the city of Rome. And we find ourselves at verse 17 of chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love for you to use one. You can find one in the rack in the Bible in front of you. You're welcome to take that Bible and keep it as our gift to you. If you don't have a Bible, you can find the page numbers for Romans 2 there up on the screen. And uh, I think I'm just going to pray here in just a second. We're just going to begin to work through. We're going to finish, Lord willing, chapter 2 today. Now, uh, this week when we were meeting in our staff meeting, discussing the service and the text, I confessed to the guys that I feel a little... Uh, I, I guess just like a modern wimpy preacher because when I uh, was looking at how other great preach not uh, I just included myself I'm sorry scratch that I'm not a great preacher <laughs> I was so self-absorbed when I looked at great preachers in the past myself not included I looked at the breakdown of how they worked through Romans and I looked at Martin Lloyd Jones and how he preached in Romans 1, 2, and 3, about 20-something messages. So he took this passage of Scripture halfway through Romans 1, all of Romans 2, and the first half of Romans 3, which is Paul's indictment of all humanity. Paul is building a case that all of humanity is guilty before God, and we are without hope unless God intervenes with the gospel. And that sets us up for the glorious news of Romans 3, verse 21, which I can't wait to get to. But before that time, we have to understand the dire straits that we are in. And we're three messages into it, and I'm already kind of like, oh, come on. It, when is this going to end? Three messages in. Um, so I, I just confess to the guys, like, I am so, like, I just don't have the constitution of these older uh, cats, but this is good for us. Paul is building a case for the necessity of the gospel. Halfway through Romans 1, he indicted all of the Gentile world. In other words, all those people that were not part of God's chosen people in the Old Testament, the ethnic Jews, then basically everybody else is guilty before God. That's the second half of Romans 1. The first half of Romans 2 that we looked at last week was this idea that all mankind, all, including the Gentiles and the Jews, were, were by nature moralists, and we, we think that we're better than other people, but really, we too are guilty. And now, in the second half of Romans 2, he's going to train his sights on his people, the Jewish people, and he's going to say that we, the privileged people of God, who had his law, we too have broken his law, and we really are no better than the moralists are the Gentiles. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning as we look at Romans chapter 2. I, I think as we work through this, I have four truths that I want to unfold for us, but they'll just kind of build as we go along. But let me pray and begin reading in verse 17. Father, thank you for the beauty of the gospel, the goodness of your grace towards us in Christ, for the Holy Spirit that 
is in your people that dwells in our earthly temples that dwells in this room that draws us together that has opened our eyes so that we can see Jesus who I believe right now is at work in the lives of unbelievers who are in this room and drawing them to you opening their ears and eyes and giving them a new heart so that they too would believe the gospel Lord do your work have your way stir our affections call people to life in Jesus convict us and encourage us and exhort us on to be more like Christ as a result of our time together. And as we see three folks, two or three folks be baptized this morning, I pray that we would be encouraged, that we would see the gospel afresh, be glorified as we gather and as we look at your word and help me to explain it clearly for the benefit of these people that I love dearly. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So picking up in verse 17 of Romans 2, Paul now turning his attention to the ethnic Jews who have the law, and he's going to build the case that they too, like the Gentile, like the moralist, are guilty before God. Verse 17, he says, but if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law. And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For, as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Okay, so let's pause there and, and, and look at the context of what Paul is saying. So he's speaking to his people, the Jews. And just a little background, if you're not very familiar with the Old Testament, and even if you are, this is just good to review, is that in the Old Testament, we read the story in the beginning of Genesis about how God created everything, the world and everything that's in it, out of nothing. He, in fact, God has eternally existed. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit And God didn't need anything. God is completely self-sufficient. In fact, there's this really good theological word that I think you should know. It's called the aseity of God. I think that's spelled A-S-E-I-T-Y, the aseity of God, which is a theological term meaning the self-sufficiency of God. In other words, God did not need anything. He didn't create the world because he was lonely or because he needed to be fulfilled, but simply as an overflow of his glory for a display of his goodness, God creates everything that is. He creates everything out of nothing, and that's the beginning of Genesis. And then this world that he created, he creates mankind, Adam and Eve, and he sets them to be his stewards over all that he has created. He gives them a mission and a task, and he says in Genesis 1 that you are my image bearers, and I'm going to set you over this created order, and you're going to represent me. You're going to be like my spokesperson, my image bearers to 
all that is. But we see very early on in Genesis 3 that mankind falls, Adam and Eve, they rebel against God, and sin enters into humanity. And when sin entered, rebellion entered into humanity, death enters in. And death is really more than just physical death. It's really separation from God who is alone life. But this did not sneak up on God. None of this surprised God. That's a great mystery, by the way, that God would create a world and make mankind that he knew was going to fall so that he could save a great multitude of those people out of the fall to be a display of his grace to the cosmos, to the powers that be. That's what God planned to do. And as the beginning of his plan of redemption, he calls a man named Abraham, and he says, Abraham, I'm going to make a nation through you, and you are going to be a people that I bless And I'm going to do it miraculously so that it will be clear to all of the other peoples of the earth that I am God. And I'm going to use you and your family, which will become a nation, to be a kind of display. So in in a sense, God is kind of shaking the etch-a-sketch where Adam and Eve failed. And again, that did not sneak up on God. He now calls out one man and says, I'm going to start afresh with a new family, and I'm going to build a nation through this family, and this family is going to be my example to an onlooking world. And ultimately, I'm going to bless that family, and I'm going to bring an offspring, a Messiah through that family, who will ultimately be the one to whom I work through, which will save the world. And we know that's the story of the Old Testament. And so God forms this nation called Israel. And he gives Israel this law. He gives them commandments. He gives them rules and regulations that govern virtually every aspect of their life. And the purpose for this law was not because God is some taskmaster, but the purpose of the law was God's goodness to sanctify, to to clean, to make his people more like him, to set them apart, not so that they would develop some sort of spiritual pride and think that they're better than the nations around them, but so that he could set them apart from the nations so that the nations would look at how Israel loves his law, lives according to his holiness, and then would be drawn to the goodness of God through the life of Israel. Of course, we know That the story of the Old Testament is that that does not happen by and large. In fact, Israel fails. But the good news, the thread of hope, the gospel in the Old Testament is not that, oh, when Israel figures out how to obey God, then everything will be okay. But it is that even though Israel has failed, God will bring a true law-abiding, holy Jew out of Israel. And that, we know, ultimately becomes Christ. But at this point of the story, we see Israel taking pride in the fact that they have this privilege from God, that they have this special status with God. And Paul in Romans 2 is drawing attention to the fact, to his countrymen, to his people, that the privileged status that God gave you in the Old Testament clearly hasn't worked for you. You are not the people that God intended for you to be. You have, you have disregarded this privilege. You have this exterior law that was meant to draw you to God, but it's merely an external thing. And you, who purport to be a teacher of the law, 
disobey the law. And you are, much like we looked at last week, you're a hypocrite, he says to the Jew. And so that, I think, leads us to this first thing that I want us to see, just application. Because I think the point of this second half of Romans 2 is merely that even the Jew, although they may boast in their status with God as his covenant people, that will not save them. Some exterior thing will not save them. And I think that's the point. So truth number one that I want us to see is that external things will not save us. That's Paul's point to the Jews. Just because you have the law, you break the law. And so you discredit the law. And this law, just because you have it, will not save you. Just because you're Jewish, just because you have this written code, is of no value to you if your heart does not follow God. Jesus gives us a parable in the Gospels that I think just really exemplifies this. It just kind of puts this in picture form. And he says this, he offers us this parable of these two people. He contrasts the religious man and the sinner. And he says something shocking at the end of his parable. Let me read it in Luke chapter 18 and verse 9. Jesus said in verse 9, he, or he speaks of Jesus, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Clearly very similar to what Paul is saying here in Romans 2. And treated others with contempt. Verse 10. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One, a Pharisee, that would have been a Jewish leader who took a lot of pride in his knowledge of the law. One, a Pharisee, and the other, a tax collector. Now, you have to understand who tax collectors are. They would have been Jewish people who would have been sellouts to the Roman government, and they would have been people that would collect taxes from their own people to help to fund the occupation of the Roman government of the Holy Lands, of of Jerusalem. And so they would be seen as the worst kinds of traitors. They would be people that would be despised by their own people. It would be almost as if, and I know I I always revert back to, uh, if there's any people in here that are actually Russian by descent, I'm sorry, but I know I always revert to this Russian-American kind of Cold War analogy because I grew up in the 70s and I was really scared of the Cold War with the Russians. And I lived in California, and I always thought that maybe the Russians might, like, like, invade the Pacific coast. And, you know, I was about an hour and a half away from San Diego, and I kept thinking that, like, Patrick Swayze in the Red Dawn, that maybe I'd wake up one morning and there'd be Russian paratroopers descending in my schoolyard and snatching up kids and, you know, making them work in factories in Siberia. <laughs> no, really. That's kind of a fear I had. Um, I was a strange little child. I... <laughs> I was also very afraid of sharks. My dad took me to see Jaws in the late 70s, and I was about eight, and that was a terrible parenting blunder by him. And I kid you not, I have not gotten in the ocean past waist deep the last 40 years, I'm telling you. Anyway, I digress. But it would be as if somebody in the late 70s or early 80s, if Russia actually did... USSR, the Soviet Union, attacked the United States, took us into captivity, and then one of us went to be a tax collector to fund the continuing Russian occupation of America. What would we feel? How would we feel about that person? We would hate that person. And so here's the contrast. The nationalist, religious zealot, the Pharisee, 
and the traitor, traitor, treacherous sellout, treasonous sellout, the tax collector, and look at it. There could not be a wider contrast. And this is what Jesus says. Verse 11, the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But this tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. So look at the picture. The religious nationalist Jew, taking pride in his exterior form of religion, says there's no way that that guy's a candidate for God's goodness. And that tax collector beats his chest, knows the depth of his need, cries out to God in mercy, and look at the result. Verse 14, Jesus says, I tell you, this man, speaking of the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other, meaning the Pharisee. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Friends, do, it's, it's, it's almost... Impossible for us in our context to realize how infuriating that would have made the religious Jew to hear that parable by Jesus. And that's exactly what Paul is saying to the religious Jew and the religious person in general here in Romans 2. These external things will not save us. Aren't we prone to the same? Maybe we think because we've grown up in a Christian home or we're part of a church. We just kind of have a loose connection with general cultural Christianity. We think that we are basically okay because we're not like those other people. We must beware of taking pride in our understanding of God or of His truth or of the Bible or whatever as if that means automatically that just because we understand it or have grown up in it, that just because of that, we're right with God. This is a personal reflection. Um, I think I became a Christian when I was a senior in high school in March of 1989. In fact, I remember clearly the first time that I ever, uh, my mind was sort of awoke to the gospel and my need for the gospel. My brother, my older brother, had been witnessing to me. He had gone away to college and he had become a Christian, and he got involved with a really fired-up, radical fellowship of Christian athletes group in his football team where he was playing in college, and they would come back year after year for summer, and he would bring buddies with him, and they would witness to me, and some of these buddies were huge guys. A couple of them ended up playing in the NFL, and they were like 6'5", 300 pounds, and they would corner me in my parents' den, and they would witness to me, and it was like that verse in Jude where it says, save some by fear. I think that was my brother's tactic. He would bring all these big guys, and I would resist the gospel. And finally, when I was a senior in high school, getting ready to go away to school in New York, my brother just kind of made one last-ditch effort, and he brought these guys, and they basically told me that, you know, where I stood with the Lord, and my brother invited me to go to this crusade. It was being held at my high school gymnasium, and he couldn't make it, so he left his girlfriend to take me, which is now my sister-in-law, and she took me to this crusade. And 
in God's providence, he just opened my eyes to, I think, for the first time, really see my need for Christ. And I think I trusted in him and believed. And very early on, my sister-in-law then took me to the church that her and my brother would attend when he was home. And it was a really, really, really sweet, gracious, warm, but very, 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 very Pentecostal church. And, and I, I say that with a lot of affection. And I, I was in that particular stream of the church. And then I went away to college at West Point. And the first guy I'm getting yelled at as a, as a plebe my first day at West Point, And this upper class cadet invites me to this Pentecostal church right outside the gates of West Point. And I was in that stream. And I learned a lot. And I grew. And I come to Fort Benning. And I opened up the phone book and looked for the type of church that I was going to at the time. And came here and went to a Pentecostal church. And and I say this with a lot of affection because I, I think that the Lord used that type of church and that group of Christians um, very, very significantly in my life at the time. Since then, I have, I think, come to, I think, a, a different understanding of a few important theological truths. And now I'm, I would be part of a, a, certainly Protestant, but different sort of stream of the church, which would kind of refer to themselves as Reformed, Okay. And I think, I think, and I say this humbly, I think I have a better understanding of the Bible now. I think that, that what I believe about the major issues are true. But here's what I've noticed. I've, so I've kind of been in two streams in my Christian life. A very Pentecostal stream and now a, a very Reformed stream. And I, and I, I want to say humbly that I think that the way I see it now is, 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 is right. And I think that there are some areas where Pentecostals are wrong. But what I noticed when I was in the Pentecostal stream is there was always this assumption that they were really right and they kind of would look down the end of their nose at other people who didn't have the fullness of the Spirit or whatever and they were just kind of, kind of snide little jokes about other Christians. And now that I'm in this other stream, it's, in a lot of ways it's kind of the same thing. Well, well we, we like Spurgeon and John Calvin and... Charles Spurgeon and John Piper and <laughs> Charles Spurgeon. <laughs> right? And let me just say that, I, quite frankly, I say humbly. I know I'm kind of doing the very thing that I'm criticizing, but I, I, I think we're right. But do you see how subtle it can be that you think that just because you have an exterior form, that somehow you're right with God? But friends, you can be the best Reformed theologian or you can be the most charismatic Pentecostal. You can be the most whatever in your stream and not truly be right with God. And that's the indictment that Paul is giving to the Jews and that the Holy Spirit would give to us today that these external things, these external forms that we build out for ourselves, that we somehow take rest in, do not save us. But only the gracious, heart-transforming work of the Spirit that we'll get to in just a second. So external things will not save us. And then secondly, just very briefly, along these same lines, is that God's word, this is the second truth, God's word must be applied, not just agreed with. So do you see these Jews, these religious Jews, they had the word and they would give a mental 
cognitive agreement to it, but it wouldn't really have, it didn't work, it didn't seep into their lives to actually change their hearts so that they would truly be obedient to God. Martin Lloyd-Jones, again, I've referred to him a lot, the great English preacher of the mid-1900s in London at Westminster Chapel, wrote this on these verses in his commentary. Actually, he spoke these words, and then it was transcribed. But this is, this is Lloyd-Jones on this verse here. He says to us today, As you read your Bible day by day, do you apply the truth to yourself? What is your motive when you read the Bible? Is it just to have a knowledge of it so that you can show others how much you know and argue with them? Or are you applying the truth to yourselves, Lloyd-Jones asks us. As you read it, always apply it. As you read about the Pharisees, say to yourself, that is me. What is it saying about me? Allow the scripture to search you Otherwise, it can be very dangerous. There is a sense in which the more you know about it, the more dangerous it is to to you if you do not apply it to yourself. And do you see that I think actually that, I should have just read that silently to myself because I think that is even a stricter warning to those who would publicly teach and preach God's word. That's why James says that not many of you should be teachers because you will come under a stricter judgment. Friends, we are so prone in our knowledge-based society to be content with just an understanding of theological things rather than fighting to apply them to our lives. Consider just how church culture often feeds this gap between what we know and what we are actually fighting to apply to our own lives. There can often be a very subtle but very strong sense in church culture that says to people, bluff it. Bluff it. And churches that take truth and doctrine and God's word and knowing it very seriously, I think are maybe more prone to this. And there can be this sort of unwritten ethos that, I mean, if you don't know what God's word says about these things, or if you aren't, you know, you, you just kind of kind of keep your mouth shut and act like you know. And the problem is, is that then there becomes this gap between what we say we believe and how we actually live. And God forbid that we actually be honest with ourselves because then we would be found out as people who don't really know what we're doing and we stand in need of grace just like those tax collectors out there. This text, it's like Paul has modern-day American church culture in his sights. It's like all of us got a bunch of little red dots on us, and, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a scope trained on every one of us to burn out the religious hypocrisy in all of us. That's what this text is for, It's to do that to our hearts, to humble us. Even if we've grown up in the church, even if we know Calvin's Institutes, even if we know God's word inside and out, it should humble us, not puff us up to pride. Listen to what Paul says. Listen to this. I 
I thought about this this week, this passage that I think is really helpful. Philippians 3, real quickly, he says in verse 12, this is the Apostle Paul who wrote this letter to Romans and Philippians. He, he was, I mean, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that Paul was pretty doctrinally solid, knew his Bible. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, to make it my own. So the things that I say I believe, I want to actually live them because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if anything, you think, if, if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. I think that's, that's funny. Like you can get away with that when you're the Apostle Paul. He's saying, you know, live up to this. And if, you're, and if you don't agree with me and you're wrong, God will show you eventually. That's, yeah, you can write that when you're the inspired Apostle Paul. But verse 16 says this. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. In other words, I think Paul is saying there is that let's actually live up to the things that we have learned. Let's actually strive to be people who live out the very things that we, we say we believe. Let's be honest with each other. Let's, let's not just dip in on a Sunday morning and dip out. Let's get to know one another. Let's go to lunch together. Let's be in community groups together. Let's go to Bible studies together. And, and when we show up in those smaller environments, let's just have grace permeate the atmosphere and not a grace that kind of lets us be comfortable in our brokenness or in our sin, but a grace that is honest and authentic, but gritty and empowering that calls us to confess sin to one another and to hold one another accountable and to roll up our sleeves and be gospel-saturated, bold, compassionate, humble, gracious People who are like that tax collector beating our chests in. I'm a sinner. They're a sinner. Let's stop doing this and grow in grace towards God together. Oh God, we let's let's give us that type of culture, Lord. Give us that type of culture as we as we pursue living out this text. Okay, and then the third truth, and then we'll 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 conclude with the last little section of verses there. The third truth that I see just in these first uh, seven or eight verses is that notice there. That salvation isn't ultimately about us, but God. Look at what it says. Look at the whole, look at the, I'm sorry, look at the whole point that Paul is making at the end of verses 17 through 24. He's, he's castigating the religious people. He is, he is criticizing them for being hypocrites. But look at what the ultimate result is that has Paul so upset at them. He says in verse 24, For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. The point Paul is saying is is that there's actually something bigger here than just our individual salvation and the securing of our own personal eternal destinies. There is a mission that God has for his people. And we see this all the way back in Genesis chapter 12. In fact, let me read Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3 for us. I want you to see this rather than just have me explain it to you. I want you to see this in the text yourself. Paul, I'm sorry, uh, God is calling Abraham the very beginning in Genesis 12 and saying, I'm going to make a nation through you. But notice his purposes in calling Abraham. It's not just for him. Genesis 12 verse 1, he says, Now the Lord said to Abram, 
Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great. Listen to this. So that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And in him and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families, not just the Jews that come from you, but all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So notice that God says, Abraham, I'm going to raise you up so that through you, I can reconcile the world to myself. There is always in God's work in our life, a so that for us as a church, God has been gracious to us as a church so that we can just kind of, kind of grow and be kind of content with ourselves and be happy. No, so that through us, we can send people to the nations. We can plant churches in this city. We can help to revitalize churches so that we can be used. We can be spent. We can be thoroughly used up for the glory of God. For us as individuals, there's always a so that God has saved you, not just so that you could be a grumpy conservative Christian or a content sort of in, inactive Christian, but so that, so that through you, through your life, through your singleness, through your marriage, through your platoon, through your cubicle, through your parenting, through whatever, so that through us, God's name would be honored amongst the people that he has put us in front of. And that's the very tragedy of what Paul is indicting the Jews here for is that their lack of obedience and heartfelt honoring of God resulted in God's name being defamed. Oh, that we would be people that are never content with individual salvation, but God's mission in and through us. Okay, let's finish with verses 25 through 29. One more truth that I see that I want us to see in this. He continues then to use, and he brings up this idea of circumcision, which would have been the aspect of the law, a commandment of the Old Testament law that was held up as as a, a picture of what it meant to be Jewish. So when God calls Abraham in Genesis 12, a few chapters later in Genesis 17, God commands Abraham as a man in his 90s to circumcise himself and then all of his children, and then circumcision, which is obviously a cutting away of a very sensitive part of the flesh of male anatomy, to be a kind of marker in the Mosaic law that comes in after Abraham, circumcision that God commanded Abraham to do becomes now part of the Old Testament law that is a clear, visible identifier of God's people. And so circumcision in the Old Testament became more than just one aspect of the law. It kind of became symbolic for what it meant to be Jewish. It it was a clear and obvious marker of God's people being set apart from the nations. And so circumcision represented so much more. It represented really basically all of what it meant to be Jewish. And so here in verse 25, Paul takes aim at that cherished marker, that cherished symbol of the Jewish people, circumcision in the law. And he says in verse 25, for circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. 
In other words, to put it in sort of a modern new covenant sense, hey, it's great that you've been baptized. And by the way, the New Testament gives us this kind of, this kind of picture of how baptism and circumcision are similar. They're not exactly similar. There are some differences, but there's a kind of congruence there. It would be like, hey, it's wonderful that you were baptized when you were 16, but you're not living for the Lord now. So what good is your baptism? That's the picture. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. So the point Paul is making, and let's use the analogy of baptism, he's saying, look, you grew up in church, you had this symbol of what it meant to be God's people, but your heart's far from God. And this tax collector who hasn't been baptized or circumcised, they, they may not have had that happen to them yet, but they're obeying God. And what it means to be a person of God is ultimately not judged by some exterior thing, but whether or not your heart has been changed. And that's what Paul says in these last two verses. He says, for no one is a Jew, a true Jew, who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. In other words, this Old Testament sign was always meant to point towards some inner spiritual reality. But a Jew, verse 29, a true Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Paul is telling us here that the purpose of circumcision in the Old Testament was just a kind of exterior picture to mark off God's people from the nations so that they could be a display to the nations, but it never ultimately could save. What truly saves is the heart change. And what does circumcision ultimately point to? It points to that heart transformation that we need. Listen to Colossians chapter 2, a little before where Reynolds read for us this morning. And, and Paul, in this other letter to this other church, ties this together. Here, Colossians chapter 2, let me start in verse 11. Paul says, In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. So clearly Paul is not talking about physical circumcision. Hang with me here. Hang with Paul's logic. He's saying there's, there's actually a spiritual reality to this outward physical sign. By putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ. What does he mean by that? He doesn't mean that we're saved somehow by Christ, but he's me, Christ's circumcision, but he's mean that Christ has cut away the dead old part of our hearts and given us a new heart. Christ through the gospel, through his death on the cross, performs the circumcision spiritually of our hearts. Do you see that? Verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, verse 13, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. 
What is Paul saying to us here? I think it's this fourth truth, is that to be one of God's people means that your heart has been transformed. It means that your heart has been made new, not some exterior thing. Paul is making the argument that what it truly means to be a person of God is not to have some mere exterior symbol, but that God has taken our dead heart and he has cut it away and made it new. And how did he do that? By crushing his son on the cross. The judgment that should have been ours, this is the gospel. Hear this clearly. If you haven't tracked with anything, hear this. This is what Paul is saying. This is the message of Romans. This is the message of the Bible. He's saying that all of us, by nature, cannot obey God because our hearts are dead and sinful. And the good news of the gospel is that the punishment that should have rightly been ours, God pours out on his perfect son and crushes Jesus on the cross. And because Jesus is a perfect, righteous, holy man, and because he is also eternally the infinite, holy son of God, he, his righteousness is enough to absorb the sin of all those that would ever trust in him. And Jesus satisfies. He propitiates the wrath of God. He removes it. He extinguishes it. He exhausts it. And then he rises again in victory over death and the grave. And now, because he has defeated death, sin, and the grave, has the power of life and death, and now is able to take dead hearts who are unable to obey and to make them alive. And that's what that Paul's phrase there is that we're saved by the circumcision of Christ, that he cuts away our old heart and he gives us a new one. And he can do that because he's defeated death and sin and everything that's opposed to us and he transforms our heart and now our heart is new so that we can now not just be merely exterior religious people, but we can be people that have truly been transformed by God's grace and now we are enabled... This is really important. Now we are enabled to obey God's ways and God's laws so that we would be a display of his glory to the nations. And Paul is telling the Jews that nothing outside will save you. You, religious person, are in the same predicament as those filthy Gentiles. You are completely dependent on God to do what only God can do, which is give you a new heart. And we're going to see that pictured here in baptism in just a moment. Now, lest we think Paul's done with us, next week we got 20 more verses in Romans 3 where he's going to summarize all of this. So keep your seatbelts on. And then the following Sunday, Brother Kashal Kale from India will preach to us. And then the Sunday after that, we're going to poke our head above the water and get to verse 21. And I'm thinking about throwing a party on the stage because we'll get to the good news of the gospel. Praise God. But isn't it good for us to not just be Christians who just kind of assume, ah, you know, we're basically right with God because we're Americans. No. We need to see the depth of human need in Romans 1, 2, and 3 before we get to the good news. Friends, only God can do it. 
Only God can do it. That's the message of salvation. Let's pray. Father, you alone can take our dead, rebellious, uncircumcised hearts and cut away the dead flesh and give us a new heart. Only you can do that. Lord, most of us in this room, if we're honest with ourselves, are are, are much more like that Pharisee than we are that tax collector. We may not be so bold as to voice it publicly, but our hearts condemn us. Our thoughts indict us. We're prone to think that we're better than other people because of some privilege or exterior thing. But ultimately, God, we stand like that tax collector, like even the worst of people, completely dependent on you. Lord, the ramifications of this in the life of a Christian are enormous and profound and all-encompassing. Who among us can be proud? Who among us can be arrogant? Who among us can look down the end of our nose at other people? Lord, humble us. May our posture be like the tax collector that we would cry out and remember our need for mercy. But the good news of the gospel is, Lord, that when you give us a new heart, we don't stay on the ground with our heads hung low, but you make us alive so that we can come up out of the baptismal waters, proclaiming and fighting and wrestling and giving everything we have to obey and glorify you, the God of our salvation. Lord, that's the Christian life. May we have this beautiful balance of understanding our need and letting it cause great humility, but seeing the beauty of the gospel and letting it propel us towards sin-defeating, old man-crucifying, flesh-mortifying sanctification for the glory of God and the display of your name amongst all peoples. Do this in us, I pray, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.